This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Ukrainian policy expert Hannah Shalis shares the ongoing experience from the war inside Ukraine. She's in Odessa and talks about what the Russians are now targeting if Putin's claims of Nazism in Ukraine have any merit at all and some evidence that they don't and the impact of international support on Ukrainians from places like Canada. Megan Fox, Andy Garcia and Oscar Isaac star in Big Gold Brick and Big Gold Brick is an amazing show that we featured here on the Shift. It's delightfully weird and worth a look. Director Brian Petzos joins us here on The Shift, and we get into this bizarre world of filmmaking. Sir Christopher Gilbert joins us from Tokyo to give us insight on anti-COVID restriction protests in his homeland of New Zealand. We get into the bizarre chaos of the capital down there and the importance of Italian church bells, of course. This is The Shift Podcast. Part of our tour around the world includes our very good buddy and family member, Chris Gilbert. Let's hit it. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Hey, there he is, big fella. How you hey, doing, Chris? How's it going? Oh, mate, I am... Uh, thriving in the moment because I just down an energy drink, one of those really potent Japanese energy drinks. But I am absolutely shot, mate. Like I have been watching, I don't know if anyone in Canada has noticed the um uh the sea shoot that happened in Wellington, New Zealand today, ending that twenty three day occupation of uh back in my hometown. My hometown where I'm from, you know, and just um oh the the proverbial the proverbial thing hit the proverbial thing today. You know what I'm saying? Really? Like it, it, it was, um, it's been a big day. So I've been keeping an eye on that today. Apart from that, I'm cheery. Cheery, just flat out cheery. Yeah. Well, is this a blame Canada moment that you're talking about down in New Zealand? Is this Canada's fault that what you're going through? I do the international dispatch. So I make a note to absolutely never pay any attention to anything that happens in Canada ever. So I do right. my job professionally and thoroughly on this show to talk about non-Canadian things. So, no, you know what? I'm not blaming Canada this time. Usually I do. Um, I feel like this is solely <laughs> a New Zealand problem uh, this really? time. I take full responsibility for my my people. So uh, let, let's start there because that's kind of what I have on my mind at the moment. And just for the audience, I have no notes. I have no news story in front of me. This is just pure Chris. All right? Just going. So... Shane, do you want to start by talking about this this twenty three day occupation in Wellington? Uh, do yeah, that sounds great to me. I um I oh. didn't know it was that long that it was running for, and I had no idea that it was this big of a deal. I just sort of thought it was spillover from Canada's protests, and then just thought, oh well, you know, like most of them have sort of faded away. Turns out this one was not that case. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? I think a lot of it is spillover from Canada's protest. A lot of the same, same funders are kind of behind it. And, you know, I think the same spark ignited both of them. The difference is that we have a very certain type of hippie um, that's used to not washing and showering or, or like doing anything apart from just sitting around a bongo drum for 23 days. Um, turns out New Zealand's hippies have turned kind of violent. Um, in the last few decades since we last heard from them. Uh, and, you know, it, it, things in Wellington kind of have just degraded into a complete mess. So let me backtrack all the way back. 
these people are anti-mandate. So in New Zealand, along with many other countries, if there's a mandate saying that if you do certain jobs, you must be double vaccinated. If you're not double vaccinated, you can't do that job. Uh, being a teacher, for example, being a nurse, a doctor, a police officer, anything when you're kind of on the front lines, you have to be you know, vaccinated. So these people have quit their jobs rather than get vaccinated. Um, and they went and protested about it, right? Uh, as is their right. Uh, we talked a little about a little bit about this last week, um, about how the portaloos or the porta potties were overflowing in the streets, about how they were stealing rubber mats from uh, the skate park, about how they were kind of abusing school children. These kind of um, things were reported to be going on. That maybe this peaceful protest wasn't, you know, as nice as it seems. Since then, okay. They, the police have kind of surrounded the streets that this occupation has taken up around Wellington Parliament. And the relationship between the protesters and the police over the last week or so has not been so great and deteriorated. So, uh, again, with the poop, the protesters had been throwing poop, their own poop, at the police over the Parliament fence. Um also, I mean, I mean that just doesn't get anybody on your side. That's just bad PR, you know. If anything, the optics of that of flying poop are not good. Mm-hmm. Um, trash bags have been piling up outside, and just the general destruction of property. The the, the campus there has closed, etc., etc. As we've talked about, the police didn't do anything. So this is really interesting, Shane, because you talked about how long it's been going on for. The guy who's the current commissioner of New Zealand police is the same guy who was the commissioner of the Auckland City Police during Occupy. And his tactic is like, look, let's just sit back, do nothing, and this whole thing will just fizzle out, right? And so that's pretty much what he did, waiting for the public to sign off effectively in their hearts and minds to just clear these people out. And I think really what has happened leading up to today is that the protesters really tied their own news, starting with the poop throwing. Okay, after the poop throwing, the police put in place concrete barricades around Parliament to make sure no new vehicles could come in, but the vehicles that were there could go out. Now, the protesters believed that these concrete barricades contained devices which emitted an EMF, an electromagnetic field, which were making them sick. For some reason, these anti-vax, anti-mandate protesters started getting headaches. They started getting sore throats for some reason. They started feeling fatigue. They started getting fevers and body aches. And let's remember that there are currently 20,000 COVID-19 cases in, in New Zealand at the moment. Oh, boy. And this is, and this is when the tinfoil hats came out. About a week ago, and I think the same thing happened in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, they literally started wearing tinfoil hats to protect themselves against this um, alleged electromagnetic field that was apparently coming from these barricades. And um, I think this is when the general public kind of signed a deal that we want to get rid of these people. They're literally wearing tinfoil hats. And um, to give you an idea of the, the, the arguments that these protesters were making, I found a couple of clips by a lady that I'll call Mary, um, because it concerns a pet lamb, which we'll get to later. So he, here's uh, one of the arguments that the, these uh, tinfoil hat-wearing um, 
poop throwing protesters was making by a lady I'm calling Mary. If you're being vaccinated, you need to be aware that you have been injected with something that creates your body to make these evil little invisible parasites called spike proteins. They they come out through your breath. They come out through your skin, everything you touch. So um, these people that don't believe COVID exists are really worried about spiky little things coming out of your breath and things that you touch and getting you sick. Um, and uh, I don't know, I don't know the, the logic behind the vaccine making you shed these things, but um, apparently they're quite dangerous and it, it killed her baby sheep. Um, here, here, let, let's listen to her talk about her baby sheep. We had a pet lamb and someone came to our house who had not been vaccinated but her partner had been vaccinated and she was shedding. So her partner got her to be shedding these spike proteins. Now this girl came to our house, picked up our pet lamb, gave it a cuddle, put it down. The next day it wouldn't drink its milk. By the end of that day, it was just, couldn't stand up or anything. We put it out of its misery and I'm a nurse. So I wanted to see what the blood was like. So we had a look at the blood. It was black and clotted. Uh, That was shedding. I feel like I should. Uh, She says that was her accent. Shedding. Well, I didn't hear anything wrong there. That's clearly the word shedding. I don't. I don't know what. <laughs> Is that why you're all laughing? I saw everyone laughing that's on the Zoom we're, call. We're all on the Zoom call, and that's why we're all laughing. Is because the shedding doesn't sound like shed. I I, I thought it was because you... she um qu- she qualified cutting open her dead lamb to check the blood because she's a nurse. Well, that's also weird. But, I mean, you did just have a big conversation about uh, flinging poop. If you have poop, fling it now. So, just saying. We didn't want to cross over the two stories. Shedding uh, spike proteins. Um, anyway, that that kind of got the public on side of, like, okay, like, we're not really behind this anymore. Um, this morning, okay, long story short, the police moved in. And just to sweep these people out of Parliament, sweep them out of the grounds around Parliament... What ensued was these protesters lit the trees in Parliament on fire. They lit their tents on fire. They lit other people's tents on fire with some people in them. They lit the Parliament playground on fire. What? They dug up bricks out of the pavement to throw at the police. Anything that they had in the occupation site, tables, chairs, um, you know, bricks from the pavement, they threw at the police. Not to mention, they all have COVID, which is the most dangerous weapon these people probably have. And wow. I'm sorry, like, I, I am a man of the people. I, you know, like, I, I am not, a, a, I mean, I, I think maybe on the show before, Shane, you and I have come, come against each other a little bit because I'm quite usually not on the police's side on most things. And I am firmly behind the police if they come up against anybody who lights a tree on fire. Like, that's a tree. <laughs> that did nobody, that did nothing to anybody. And a child's playground. So I, I, I'm, I've had it with these people. You don't get to burn trees. You don't get to burn playgrounds. And I've never seen any, this about anybody before, but I genuinely think these are terrible people. 
Um, they tried to, the, the, the law school across the road from Parliament is the largest wooden building in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's been a new report of like an arson attempt on that. Ugh, just clear them out, get them out of the city. Just they've been using rubber bullets, they've been using like tear gas, and they've been using um fire hoses, you know, the powerful water guns that come out of the long tube. They've you know, a hose. They've been using those. <laughs> That's pretty good. And and usually I'm the one being like, Oh, those policemen, they're so dastardly. And today I'm like, nah. But uh, tomorrow I'm I'm back to all cops of bastards. Today I'm like nah, sweep them out. And um, I to, to, I can't express myself very well because I'm so frustrated. But there is a lady called Karen who lives in the suburb called Stokes Valley, north of um, Wellington. I found this little gem from her on Twitter today, and it very much summarizes my feelings. What's wrong with the mandate? She's only trying to save lives. Don't you care about people's lives? Have none of you's got a job pack up and fuck off because nobody wants you there you all deserve 20 wax there you go 20 wax yeah 20 something wax i'm not sure what she said but 20 something wax by the way guys listening at home there's a lot more where that came from if you find that little gem on twitter yeah, that there's two minutes of that. She really ramps it up. So um And well and there's also no bleeping in the original, be cautioned. Yeah, well, we're all adults here, you know. You know we're not broadcasting in the safety of our own truck cabins. Well what do you call the bit where you drive the, the, the truck? Is it the cabin? The cab. The the cockpit? The cab. The cab. The cab, yeah. yeah. We're not you know, we're not broadcasting from there, so you know, feel free to listen to whatever you like in the in the privacy of your it's own true. cab. But yep. Wellington protest over. I'm done with it. All right. Poor little lamb, though. Can we just say what it is? Yeah. Um, We're going around the world here with uh, Sir Christopher Gilbert. We got a couple of different spots to go to. Uh, Where would you like to go? Let's how about let's go to Italy. Why we do that? Okay, yeah. Let's go to Italy. We'll do this one quickly because I really want to get to the New York story. Um, But maybe this one's a little bit more savory. turmoil in a small italian town after a judge silences church bells we have like um an italian operatic fiasco going on here i thought this might be related to a story i found a couple of weeks ago where there was a priest in a small italian town who was uh kind of uh chastised by the locals for ringing his bells too much he's always ringing those darn bells and i've never been to italy but i assume that there are a lot of bells um there is a minority Slovenian community in this town in northern Italy, and they're now calling on the European Commission to act to protect their town bells after an Italian judge silenced them. It's a town called Dolina. Uh, it's close to Italy's border with Slovenia. And I'm not going to say this correctly. I always get something wrong every week. But the bells of San Ulderico. Ud- Church, I mean, at least it's not as hard as saying Worcestershire sauce. Apparently, they're essential to the rhythm of everyday... Thank you, I did that time. The (laughs) rhythm of everyday life, with the tolls of the bells not only informing them of the start of Mass, a feast, or when someone has died, but they also serve as a clock. Um, But others have (laughs) thought they're loud and excessive. Um, You know, it's been going on for thousands of years, and a uh, judge has decided, you know what? That's enough. 
no more bells, and the row has embittered the population of 4,800 people, um, drawing accusations of a personal be- uh, vendetta and, uh, may I say, a blood feud between uh, people in the town. I made that last part up, but I like to imagine it. In fact, when I was reading this story, um, I got that, that scene in my head. I don't know how familiar everybody is with um, uh, Don Giovanni by Mozart. Do you guys know Don Giovanni, the opera by Mozart? There's a, a, a scene where um, the commandatare kind of the statue starts talking to, um, to, to Don Giovanni and then and Don Giovanni is terrified at the, the, the voice of this dead commandatare. Can, can we hear that? Do you have that bit there, Brendan? Yeah, this is how I feel about it. It's like a, it's like an Italian, it's like an Italian. What word am I looking for here? It's like an Italian something. Somebody says it was bam, 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 bam all day long. Says Mario Zeriel, the organizer of the petition, who counted 550 strokes a day between Monday and Saturday. And he, does this guy have nothing better to do than count strokes of a bell? And 1,350 on a Sunday. It would start at 6 a.m. with 70 strokes for the Ave Maria. But I've never heard, a, you know, a bell referred to as the stroke of a bell before. I've heard the, the chime of a bell, the ring of a bell. I've never heard the stroke of a bell. 70 strokes. And then at 7 a.m. and then every 15 minutes until another long ring for the start of evening mass. It was crazy. But nobody wanted the bells to be silenced. And in no way is this an attack against Slovenian traditions. So there's a bell problem. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. I kind of like that. Maybe not every 15 minutes, but I kind of like, you know, the big old church bells. I mean, and how about that notion that it works as a clock? I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? Have Have you ever been somewhere like that? That um, I mean, I was in Turkey and they did the call to prayer a few times a day, but I've never been to. Have you ever been somewhere that like makes loud noises often around town like big bells like that i like bells or like announcements or no just big just the bells you hear church bells and stuff i like it downtown like in various cities you go downtown there's usually one big old church that's banging the bells away sometimes it's only at 12 noon and stuff though i don't know if i've ever heard it where it's like the same time all day every day here in Tokyo at five o'clock, we have the five o'clock chime every day, which is kind of like a little like uh, jingle, which plays over the loudspeaker at five o'clock every day. And we also, I think that the the um, equivalent of Italian bells or a um, a call to prayer in Tokyo might be the little cars that drive around blasting political announcements. There's mm-hmm. little cars that drive around going, they drive around, especially during campaign season. In fact, one time, at my lo- outside my local train station, I saw a guy sitting in a car blasting an announcement, campaigning against cars that drive around blasting out announcements. <laughs> I like that. The uh, you know how I used to what announcements I had when I was a kid. What was that? Um, when you were in the neighborhood, and it was your time for you to come home, your parents would go out and honk the car horn. And there was like a distinct car horn pattern. So you all had to know the sound of your horn and then the pattern that your dad would use to honk the horn. And so when you heard the, I got to go. That's Patrick's dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Steve, got to go, man. 
That's your dad. Oh, Steve, that's your dad honking. I know you honk anywhere, dude. Yeah. Actually, exactly. I think I think I know like what the call to prayer or the five o'clock chime or the sound of Vancouver is, which is the um the Bluetooth speaker of a trail runner. I would say that is the native sound <laughs> oh, of, yeah. of Vancouver. It's just people running around blasting music everywhere they go from their bicycles and their Nikes. Yeah. Brendan's with me. Oh yeah, hundred percent. There's actually yeah someone on the train who does it really loudly. At the same time, I have to use the train to come to work. It's um, it's fun. Like yeah. those people who do speakerphone in public. Oh, yeah. Now we're just complaining. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're just like four white guys <laughs> complaining on the radio. Awesome. Let's keep it going. <laughs> oh, this is so good. I love it. Um, can we get uh, one more quickly here, York. Chris? You yeah, a little short on time, so let's get one here quick. I'm going to bang this one out, no pun intended. The city that never sleeps complains of New Yorkers noisily having sex too much. Um, there's a wave of six mayhem, as in quotation marks, that apparently been sweeping New York City, prompting residents to lodge an increasing number of noise complaints. Um, from 19th of February 2021 to 9th of February this year, apparently there were uh, 277 complaints about noisy sex. That doesn't seem like that much, can I just say. I'm a little bit disappointed. I thought I had read more than that. Anyway, Queens produced the most with 103 Manhattan, 66, Brooklyn, 55, and the Bronx, 44. Staten Island, not much rump-a-dump going on in Staten Island. Only four complaints about noisy sex. Um, I just want to read this bit, okay? Um, In Cross Bay Boulevard in Queens, 56 complaints were logged about, quote, hippies allegedly dressing up as Freddy Krueger, Pennywise, and the Easter Bunny, while engaging in coital revelry as the theme song of the wrestler Velveteen Dream played in the background. Can oh we boy. hear the, the theme song for Velveteen Dream, please? Can we have that? Velveteen Dream. Oh yeah. Let's keep that going for a second. The quote continues. They're still, ha- sorry, they're still here causing a sex mayhem. We thought it was too, out- too cold outside for an orgy party. Doesn't this guy ever stop? Another resident said, for the love of God, stop these six addicts. O to the R to the G to the Y. If you know how to spell and read, I like that spell and read, that means orgy. So there is a spate of, um, what should we say, Um, promiscuous activity sweeping the city um, of New York at the moment, enough to make 277 complaints in one year anyway. And good for you. Yeah, congratulations to all of them. High five and good shift. Sir Christopher Gilbert joins us from Tokyo every week here on The Shift. Chris, thanks for being here, buddy. Great to hear your voice. No worries. Yeah, see you guys next week. This is The Shift Podcast. At The Shift, we have been learning and experiencing uh, through Voices of Ukraine what is going on over there and lots has changed here in the last bunch of hours and we uh, want us to make sure that uh, we are up to date with a legitimate accurate voice coming out of ukraine and what is going on over there in odessa on the black sea coast south end of ukraine hannah shalis director of security programs foreign policy council ukrainian prism is the name of the website you can look at it and uh, take a look for yourself as well 
Uh, joins us now, uh, Hannah Shalist. How are you? Um, good morning. Uh, probably it is more or less good as we are able to talk with you. At least we have the basic connections and we expect yeah. that we would have difficulties today. Yeah, you know, I'm always grateful when we hear back uh, from from you and your colleagues there of, of what is going on, Hannah. And I want to acknowledge your work. By the way, I turned on the BBC uh, this weekend soon after we had had you here on the shift. And, uh, and there was your face popped up on the TV in front of me. So um, I acknowledge your hard work in representing uh, everything that's going on in and around Ukraine. You do a fantastic job with it, by the way. And, um, and it was nice to see you there um, safe and sound with everything that's going on. Are you still safe in Odessa? Is everything, is everything in your pocket of Ukraine still a safe place to be? Uh, the heavy fightings are coming closer to the city, and within the last days, we had several shellings uh, just uh, 20 kilometers uh, from the city. It's the fact that it's the suburbs of the city where it's happened. We also had an attempt of the landing operation, but uh, uh, very unsuccessful, so they didn't come to the territorial waters yet. Uh, maybe the weather helped us. You know, uh, we are joking in Odessa that it is the first time when we are happy for the snow on the 1st of March. Because Odessa is the south city, and usually we already have coffee outside. Uh, when something is bad uh, with the weather the first days of March, it is like a disaster here. So now it is extremely bad weather, and Odessa people for the first uh, time in their life are really happy for this bad weather because it is making the landing operations much more complicated. Help us understand, uh, Hannah, what you're seeing, what do we need to know uh, when you look out your window and if that window is your communication to your colleagues and friends around Ukraine, um, what is the tone right now? I have a list of, of things that have gone on in the last hours. Uh, certain areas have started to see increased action. Kharkiv is uh, seeing tons and tons of terrible, dreadful things that are happening there. Um, Maripol, we had heard that there was some um, uh, uh, marine uh, landings there as well. So help us through your your window, your lens, uh, Hannah. What, what are you seeing right now in Ukraine? You know, to the feeling of determination that Ukrainians had uh, during all these days, uh, uh, probably since yesterday, we already have the feeling of angriness. Uh, because uh, as for now, Russians are shelling more and more, and not the military objects, but civilians. You can find plenty of pictures of the disastrous situation in Kharkiv. So I wanted to say that what, why, why the angriness came, and that's what I'm talking with my friends all around the country, that more and more civilian objects being targeted, and you can't say that these civilian objects being near the um, uh, military objects, that that is the collateral damage, because you have uh, uh, museums being targeted, you have universities uh, buildings being targeted, you have the uh, even the hospital for the newborns being targeted this night, and uh, the um, uh, manufacturing for bread so completely civilian objects that never are near the military objects uh, in the towns and uh, mm -hmm. you saw the awful pictures from Kharkiv the uh, previously predominantly Russian speaking city with uh, not that uh, with the absence I would say of nationalistic sentiments in uh, the city that Russians even hoped that would greet them in the information that security services and intelligence presented in uh, December, January, there were talks that uh, Russians will start with the revolution, as they call it, in Kharkiv. It didn't happen. As we see, the city is really fighting heavily, and that's why they are punished heavily. 
But now we are also afraid of the nuclear facilities and we are afraid of our UNESCO facilities. Because Russians, for example, announced the shootings for the security services around the, um, uh, it is the building of the security services agencies. And in Kiev, the main head office of our security services, it just next to the unique church, uh, uh, St. Sophia, uh, it is really the unique for the world cultural heritage. And uh, uh, even during the Nazi time, uh, we managed to save it. And even Soviets didn't destroy it because the world cultural community stand uh, near it. Now the shelling is happening very, very uh, close to it. And nuclear facilities. Chernobyl is currently occupied uh, by the Russian forces. We already have the raise of the um, uh, nuclear uh, level, and uh, the shelling is happening near other atomic stations. Remember that Ukraine had quite a number of them. Uh, Mykolaiv uh, is under the fire now, and uh, the atomic station is nearby. So that makes the actions of the Russian Federation more and more barbaric. So when you have those places like Kharkiv that, you know, that are so closely related to Russia, um, I, I guess that I don't understand, Hannah, how Russian forces can go into a city like that and blow pieces of it to oblivion and then expect that they're going to be welcomed there. I don't understand that. That makes no sense to me. I also don't, don't understand. I guess it's a typical war thing. They've targeted the Kiev TV tower. We have reports of that. But yet Russia claims that, you know, has said again and again and again, sort of these uh, Nazi drug users that are running Ukraine. And yet they've now gone in and damaged the Holocaust Memorial uh, in Ukraine. And so it seems to me that they are proving themselves, even in their own propaganda, to be completely wrong um, when they're the ones that are doing damage in these places where they claim they're supposed to be welcome. It makes no sense, does it? Uh, absolutely, and that's good that you talked about it because that's what Ukrainians tried to speak for the last eight years. Um, even in Ukraine in general, before all of this, the far-right nationalistic parties altogether received maximum 2% of voters' support during all elections. So you can imagine what does mean 2% when in Germany you have 20% for the AFD, the far-right political party. And we can speak about other parties in France or different European democratic countries. So uh, that's, that was a very suitable Russian propaganda narrative. And the reason is that the sentiments about the Second World War are very strong, first of all, um, at the post-Soviet space, as extremely strong in Russia and quite strong within the different European countries. So when you play with this image of Nazi, that's something that all people still remember the horrible times. But it's always been very strange, and it's never been the reality in Ukraine when Russians try to use it that Nazi Ukrainians are anti-Semites and uh, uh, painted the very offensive things at the synagogue in Odessa, for example. The head of the far-right uh, political party arrived to Odessa and together with Rabi cleaned uh, the building. So just yeah. to demonstrate that it have nothing uh, against and has nothing with the Nazi. Uh, and as for now as well, you see, it's not only a Holocaust, but think of an uh, option. Our president is Jew. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So how to name him as a Nazi, that's that, that just a nonsense. But unfortunately, this narrative is so strong among the Russians because it's been put in their propaganda for such a long time that I don't know how many years we would need to clean it up from their um, uh, heads. We see now all the statements in Russian social networks that they are liberating Ukraine from Nazi uh, we see it in the um, uh, leaflets of the military that are coming and captured at the territory of Ukraine. So the call from their officers, like why they're in Ukraine, it is literally said that they are liberating us from Nazi. It's it's well, you know what your your president's sense of humor from his old career uh, is not lost when he was invited to Minsk for the. Um, for the peace talks and he said no thank you and he suggested israel um i think his sense of humor does not get lost in this too because if he's a nazi why would he want to go to israel for peace talks um and and what what a what a leader that is what do you see from the president and what do ukrainians see from president Zelensky uh, as he continues to uh, stay the course on what uh, his stand has been all along which is not leaving kiev you know, that is interesting that sense of humor is not only for the president, it is for the nation. And it's so difficult to explain to many international journalists why we are joking um, to some of their questions. They said, like, you have a tragedy. I said, yes, but while we are joking, it means we're still alive and that we can have our sound mind. And that, that is like the life instinct, probably. So many jokes are now at the big boards uh, uh, around the uh, country because people are taking off the um, uh, street uh, um uh, science, uh, uh, because Russians cannot understand where to go. They are lost in, in our roads. So, uh, uh, But putting very, very funny phrases uh, uh, against them. And that is definite reaction like a protection. With the president, he really demonstrated his courage. And we are honest that we were not expecting such a behavior from our president. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. of his past, uh, because of his... Uh, um, he never had a military experience or something like this. That courage that he is showing now, that's what even his opponents are strongly supporting. And now you can see from even from the ex-president, who was his uh, most severe opponent, who is saying, uh, as for now, he is my president. I will get my political quarrels with him later. That's unbelievable. And it, it's it's so amazing. Can I ask a question about those road signs? What we're seeing get posted out here is um, that some of the road signs have been doctored, telling Russians to, with profanity and, and bad language, of course, uh, to go home. Uh, I'm saying that kindly without the, the swear words. Uh, is is that legitimate that you're seeing that, that some of those road signs have been uh, changed into telling the Russians to go home and to confuse them like that? Yes, originally uh, that sign appeared uh, for our State Road Administration uh, Facebook page, but then they made it available, and I already uh, have these signs around my town, so they are real, <laughs> and people wow. are printing them. Uh, not only that blue one that you saw with the direction, uh, yeah. uh, go to, uh, go again, go to Russia, uh, but yeah. many, many others repeating our officers from Zmini Island phrase and, and many others. So uh, these uh, uh, street lines are, uh, street signs are already real. So Canada continues to add more measures, uh, Hannah Shalist. They say that there's more coming. There is more help coming from Canada. Uh, President Biden down in the United States, they've, fi- I don't know why it took so long. They finally blocked Russian airplanes from their airspace. Um, they say there's more helping. There's been some promises about, you know, the sort of you've seen nothing yet. 
Um, how does that land with Ukrainians? Is it, is it obviously not fast enough? Not enough? Um, is the perception of Ukrainians that the world is doing enough for Ukraine right now, or does it need more? You know, that, that's never possible to say what does mean enough, uh, because the world is definitely doing a lot. And many countries that we've never expected uh, are doing a lot. And not only countries and their governments, but people. To show you one small example, Japan, which is so far from Ukraine, but and usually try to take neutral position because they have their own uh, problems with the, the Russian Federation. But just for three days, when our embassy opened a special humanitarian account for the humanitarian aid, their people donated uh, $17 million in three days for humanitarian aid. That's, that's definitely demonstrating how the world is trying to support as much as they can. However, there are certain things that Ukraine need and that probably we are still lacking. Ukraine is insisting on the no-fly zone. Uh, we know how difficult that is. We know that many NATO countries are afraid because of the that, that may mean to, to join the war, uh, as they explain it. But at the same time, you need to think how many nuclear objects uh, we have at the territory of Ukraine. So at least the no-fly zone near them, that's something that would really help not only for Ukraine, but uh, uh, many of those people who are against it uh, should remember what is, I mean, Chernobyl. And unfortunately, it's, it's not to make somebody to be afraid, but uh, each of these plants are equally dangerous. And uh, considering how uh, unprecisely uh, Russians are shelling now, uh, this risk is really high. That's why these specific things is what Ukraine needs and what is sometimes quite difficult to or international community to implement. One other story, because your stand uh, with, you know, dire Director of Security Programs, Ukrainian PRISM, is accuracy and clarity in reporting. I mean, that's that's a big stand that you guys take. Um uh, Mikhailo Zernikov, we had on a few times here on the shift as well. And he had said, I said to him, I said about supply lines and not enough fuel to get to Kiev. And he said to me on the radio, he said, or he said, Russian soldiers are idling their vehicles long enough that they're running out of gas on purpose so they don't get there. Now we've actually started to hear some international reporting of sabotage on Russian soldier vehicles. Uh, so their uh, fuel tanks leak, so they can't make it to where they're supposed to go. In the spirit of clarity, do you have any reporting that you've heard directly out of Ukraine around uh, this sort of self-sabotage notion that some soldiers are doing everything they can to slow those those convoys and columns down? Yes, we already heard the reports. Uh, some of them confirmed, some in the social networks. So here it depends how much you... Um, respect what is published there but we definitely uh, uh had examples of uh, quite a number of equipment being left like tanks or machines when you see the tank with the full fuel but at the same time nobody around that's a clear demonstration that it's been just left over there we also started to see the um, attempts to sabotage at the belarus territory and that's important to uh, emphasize because belarus became a party to the conflict uh, their uh, unofficial, or better say, illegitimate leader, um, Mr. Lukashenko, allowed to use its territory for the uh, tanks and uh, uh, missiles and for the Russian forces attack. And yesterday he even said that the Belarusians will go. And uh, we knew how strong is opposition against him in the country. The Belarusians don't uh, want to fight. And we already have reports from their media that they are doing sabotage for all this supply that is going by the railway from Belarus to Ukraine. 
And uh, th that's important because uh, uh, we need uh, their population to understand as well how dangerous that is. But in terms of uh, Russian military, except of left uh, equipment, ammunition, or the problem with the fuel, uh, we also have uh, uh, more and more cases of Russian soldiers who are just give up. Be, uh, especially when you speak not about professional military, but a lot of conscripts are uh, being sent, and these guys were not ready to fight. So they decide that to surrender is uh, better, that at least can save their life and their conscious, uh, rather than uh, to fight without proper uh, logistics and proper supply from the Russian Federation. Hannah Shalist is in Odessa, southern Ukraine. Hannah, I wanted to play something for you that happened in Canada tonight. And I hope that you can tell your friends and your colleagues uh, that this is how Canadians are are supporting. So hockey is uh, obviously big here, and um, even the Russian teams are, are starting to get blocked from participating in international competition, including here in Canada coming up later this year. At a NHL professional hockey game with Winnipeg Jets and Montreal Canadiens, the team brought in a choir, and I believe it was, I, I might not be pronouncing it properly, I'll do my best, a Husli, a Ukrainian male chorus from Winnipeg, Manitoba, in Canada to sing the national anthem, the Canadian national anthem, which is tradition at every hockey game. They also uh, did this in front of thousands and thousands of people before the hockey game, and I wanted to play this clip for you. Shalist in Odessa. Um, that's from Canada for you. Thanks a lot. And that's really pleasant, such uh, symbols. Uh, we heard it at different of uh, football games around Europe, at, at, uh, uh, as you said, at hockey, because Ukrainian diaspora is so strong uh, and uh, grateful to, to Canada for uh, the last 20, uh, I, I would say, uh, more than century that uh, it's present there. And uh, uh, Ukrainian hockey players really have a role in development of Canadian hockey. So this uh, bond and this connection um, emotionally is very important. But even the biggest operas, you know, uh, yesterday the Metropolitan Opera uh, sang uh, Ukrainian anthem and it was so touchable. It means like that everybody can demonstrate their support as much as they can. And for Ukrainians, these symbolic things are not uh, less important than the weapons that are sent from different countries. Hannah Shalist in Odessa, Ukraine, please stay safe. I look forward to connecting with you again and um, and uh, keep doing your good work, Hannah. Uh, I realize it's just my opinion, but I've seen some of the other work you've done with the BBC and other organizations, and boy, oh boy, you're doing some amazing work representing your country. Thank you for being a part of my show. Thank you for the invitation. Always glad. This is The Shift Podcast. Um, Big Gold Brick is is a, a new show that's out, and the director of that show is Brian Petzos, 
And Brian's with us now from New York City to talk about it and nerd about it. Hey, Brian, how are you, bud? How are you, Shane? I'm good. Your timing is impeccable with this because, of course, uh, what a great escape to go and reinvest in movies with everything going on around the world today. I find that really appealing, and I think that the audience really does, too. It's a really great time for people to, you know, maybe just go spend a little time with your creative heart and and watch a good show. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this film in particular is supposed to be an experience. It's mm-hmm. supposed to take you somewhere else. And even though, like, the, init- the initial foundation of it sort of starts in a very real place, it definitely goes way out there. Now, most everyone who's going to be listening has not seen the show just yet, of course. Um, be So delightfully, like, I remember when I watched the trailer for the first time, I was like, okay, that looks fun. <laughs> Weird, but fun. Um, am, I, am I feeling your intention right with the movie? You are, you are. I mean, it's, it's funny. It took a long time in my life for me to take the word weird and not see it as a negative and to see me it too. as a character. Yeah. And if you, I think definitively, it's not a negative word. Um, to me, it's a very intriguing word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really appreciate you picking that up. Um, at the foundation of the film is someone who has experienced uh, a serious head injury, which is was actually inspired by something in my real life. Someone very close to me suffered a pretty serious head injury. And so for me, that allows me to play with the rule system a bit in the film. And so when you say the trailer is crazy and the movie's crazy, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely didn't want to, didn't want to hold back. And so it, it definitely gets out there. Peak absurdity is achieved. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, you talk about weird, there was a time where someone had said to me about the, my phrase wasn't weird. It was freak flag. Someone <laughs> said to me about freak flag and I was offended right. by that. And then I was sitting down with a friend probably about a year and a half later. Like I was mad when someone said, what are you talking about? I have a freak flag. And then about a year later, I was sitting down for a beer with a friend and, and she said to me, she said, she talked about her freak flag. She says, oh yeah, man, I got to set that freak flag free. And I was like, wait a second. So this is normal. Like for me, it had never occurred before. And then I embraced it. I was like, what if everybody just has a freak flag? And what if everybody could be weird and let it fly? And how cool would that be in life? Right. The world would be, I I can assure you a much better place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Yes. I like that. You've taken, um, you've taken that and you've turned it into something. Um, Personal question about the head injury thing. Somebody that is in your life every day that you've had to live with because I've a brain injury for me has been something that I've inside my family, uh, my partner, Melanie, uh, her family, there is brain injury as well. I think there's an awful lot of people that can relate to some of the seemingly psychedelic moments that come being around somebody. I don't mean to sound cold and callous when I say this. I mean it to be quite loving, actually. Um, the adventure of the psychedelic things that come from head injury and brain injury, uh, it can be a wild ride. Absolutely. And, and I, I really tried to dance the perspective shift throughout the film uh, between Emery Cohen's character named Samuel is the one he's been struck by a car driven by Andy's character. Andy's character is named Floyd. And so Floyd played by Andy Garcia is constantly, you know, tiptoeing around the awkwardness, the uncomfortableness of the moment. Um, whereas Samuel's character is fully experiencing all these things. And although the movie kind of extrapolates it outward, um, 
from personal experience, this this person who's quite close to me, I, I you know I'll never forget. He called me and said he's bawling, crying. It was a Tuesday afternoon, sunny out, and said I was just standing in front of a storefront, and I was an ape. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I was an ape. I wasn't me in the reflection. And he just sprinted home like bawling. And it was, it ranged from that type of hallucination to the deepest, darkest depression. And I'm, you know, most of us have experienced depression to some degree. Some of us experience a lot more of it than others. He's someone who has probably experienced it before, as am I. But this, he told me, was a, like a 90 whereas the former normal depression would be a 10 and just the the brain putting itself back together, um, trying to uh, just the, you know, the whole series, the litany of different things. Um, Yeah. So I, I, of course, you know, the, the movie is, does function as a comedy on, on some level. And that's just kind of the only way I know how, but uh, yeah, it's serious, serious stuff underneath, underneath the surface there. If you can't have fun with it, really, I know that, in our with our history of it around the family, I mean, there had to be a few laughs around it in order to make um, everybody, including the injured person, feel okay, right? Like, yeah, it was really funny when all of a sudden you dropped your coffee cup in the living room and and fell into the blinds and tore the blinds off the wall. Inconvenient, <laughs> I mean, sure, but I mean, that was kind of funny. I uh, I'll never forget my my grandfather had Alzheimer's and he walked like into the sliding glass window one day when it was his symptoms were starting to really kind of become bothersome. And he was the first one to die laughing about it. Yeah. Right. And this is when he could still laugh at that stuff. But we, you know, we were the kind of family that would all join in and, and laugh about that, even though, you know, that's, and I'm probably the guy who also made jokes at my other grandfather's wake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so forgive me. Yeah, well, you know, and and I had my father and uh, ex father in law uh, before he passed away. He was a brain injury guy too, and we went to the store, uh, just kind of like a giant variety store, like a Walmart kind of thing. And um, and I gave him the cart to push, and he's like, "Oh, I never get to drive the cart." He was so excited, and then so he's <laughs> driving the cart, and he took out an entire magazine rack. All, all over the floor, everything's messed up, carts on its side, and he's standing, and I, he looked at me, terrified, and I'm laughing my butt off, and then he starts laughing, I'm like, well, I guess we found out why you're not allowed to drive the cart, and then <laughs> we cleaned up and went about our day, and then he told that story and retold that story and how great he felt, so this is really cool that you've created this. Um, Brian uh, Petzos, uh, director, writer, uh, actor too. Uh, most of your stuff has been shorts in the past. How great does it feel to create something that is full length, big and robust? Sure. I just, I do want to qualify former actor, which I love okay. qualifying. Um, oh, do you? But it, it is a really on. big part. It's a really big part of my writing and directing though. So I, but I do appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, working in short form as a director is its own very complicated thing. Uh, you know, it's it's really hard to make a short function in terms from my point of view. Um, it's it's you know, it does present its own challenges. But that being said, I, you know, I think my first real writing on a real scale was was actually feature length. Hmm. And so to to get to finally, you know, produce and, and direct something that is feature length that I wrote uh, was obviously a dream come true. Very it's very, very difficult stuff making a film uh, and uh but no, there's, there's, to me, cinema is the most all-encompassing art form. And so to, to have it sort of come and breathe now is, is amazing. 
Now let's talk about this film in particular because you have quite a lineup of folks on here. Um, I, I have a million questions because I get I get um, I get curious about a because I don't even know right like I'm so out of my lane when I ask this question. A how do you find these people? B, do you go into it going, I'm going to find the most eclectic list of people? It reflects the script. If you see the trailer, it reflects the script. But at the same time, when you're talking about having Andy Garcia and Megan Fox and um, Tim Rock and some of these other actors that are like, you would, uh, this is terrible assumption. You probably wouldn't see them all hanging out at the same golf course. You know what I'm saying? No, Um, you're absolutely right about that. That's fun. Tell me about it. For sure, for sure. I mean, it's it's you know, it's such an interesting thing, kind of the, the casting process, because obviously, and people ask me like, were you thinking of these people when you wrote the thing? And truthfully, no. But I do keep a, a list in tandem when I'm writing of people that I just I really like creatively, and you know, someone like Andy Garcia is, I, I mean, a total dream come true. Someone who I've just, you know, I've, I've used the word worship before as a kid. Just he's just so incredible. And I love the idea of him in this part. And I've done, obviously I've worked with Oscar Isaac um, several times previously, and he and I are, are friends and he was, you know, he was sort of involved at a very early stage. And, and, and when the script started circling around quote unquote Hollywood, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, one day you get a call and it's from Manny Garcia and he wants to talk about your screenplay. Um, you know, the casting kind of, it, it, it's always slow initially and then very fast at the end which is the exact same way it happened with this. Oh. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I've got dream come true for a first time feature director to have such a, such a cast. Well, but then you got to put all the, like Oscar Isaac's schedule. I mean, how do you fit their schedules to like Andy Garcia and Oscar Isaac? I don't even know how you make their schedules work. Well, I mean, Oscar was tricky because Dune was happening as well. Yeah. We shot before the pandemic. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I believe we actually borrowed Oscar from Dune. <laughs> um, I think he squeezed us in. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I knew I was never going to be able to get a bunch of his time, but we knew we wanted to come play. And so he worked it out. And, um, you know, even though he is more abbreviated than some of the other parts, I think the whole thing sort of leads to him. And it's, uh, I just love him in this movie. When you go home, Brian Petzos, young Brian, hmm, let's call you seven. Little Brian goes home. He spent his day with Andy Garcia and Megan Fox and Oscar Isaac and the long list of other actors that are a part of this, you put your head down on the pillow, you wrote it, you're directing it, you're putting it all together and you're thinking about your day with those people. Like at what point do you pee your pants a little bit and go like, my dreams are coming true right now in front of me when I'm making big gold brick. Like at what point do you really settle in and still little Brian goes, holy crap. Yeah, I mean, the, the the first time that happens is when someone, quote unquote, real reads the script and digs it. And then it only increases to the point where you're actually physically shooting and you're literally physically directing Andy Garcia. And it's like it's it is a pinch myself moment. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, you can't really take too much time to revel in it because being a writer, director, and producer is a <laughs> really tricky job. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I was, I had like a 40 day shoot that we shot in 30 days in Toronto. And I was sick for about a month when I got back. 
really to New York. Yeah, I was, it was, I bet, eh? it was so exhausting. And my last day shooting in Toronto, my personal schedule that day was 22 hours. So it was a breakneck thing. So there wasn't a ton of time to like, you know, to wallow in the, uh, the ecstasy of, of these things. Uh, but yeah, was there, I, um, in retrospect, very thankful. Yeah, I bet. Is there, is there like, so, so were you crossed over during COVID restrictions at the time? Like what, what was that timeline like? Cause that must've actually added a bunch of more hurdles. That was, you're absolutely right. It was, it took a while for us to get to the point where I could actually come back. I did, uh, my offline edit here in New York, but I had to go back to Toronto for several months to like finish, finish the film. That was a whole thing, a whole series of hoops to jump through. When I finally got let in, I had to quarantine, you know, the normal post-production process. There's tons of people around. This was not that there was just several of us in any given location, fully masked up. It was, it was, you know, I've, I've finished other stuff before, even in the short form. And it's, this was a very bizarre thing to, to do very isolated. And, um, but needless to say, I, yeah, I, I, uh, we, we finished the film in Toronto and got it done and yeah, the pandemic has been bad for everyone. It was, it was also bad for us. Yeah. It's really cool though. Hey, like it really it, is. Yeah, I mean, for sure. For sure. That's neat. A cerebral comedy is what they're calling That's it. Um, cerebral in quotes. <laughs> yeah, I see that. So, I mean, you mean it, you kind of don't mean it and all those things all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I think some people are thinking it's like a pretentious thing that calling it a cerebral comedy, but it's it's entirely because there's a head injury. <laughs> yeah, I get it. That's very cool. Yeah. I like this. I can't wait to see the full thing. A big gold brick is the show and Brian Petzos is the writer, director and uh, the very, very busy man that put it together. Congratulations, dude. Like, what do you say? Give you a high five. And, and say good shift. Like, Thank this is pretty you, cool. Man. I really appreciate it, Shane. Uh, mean it from the heart. Yeah, me too. I, and it is, it is delightfully weird. Like I remember, like I said to Ryan uh, here on the shift, I said, you know, this is so cool. It's so weird. It's kind of cool. Like I look forward to seeing this. So I, I, like I appreciate this. it, Shane. Thank you, man. Well, thanks so much for sharing time with us, Brian. I really, uh, I'm sure that you've got more things that are cooking and uh, we look forward to hearing about them when you put them together. Absolutely, man. Uh, keep your eyes peeled. Just just finished the, uh, the new screenplay and uh, now we're putting it together. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CuriousCast.ca. 